The Process, a podcast about creativity and experimental music. In the world of experimental music, outcomes and accolades for creators can be uncertain and at times seem far and few between. Therefore, creators and practitioners of experimental music must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one creator and their music. Understanding how and why they create can inform aspiring creatives and help audiences better understand and navigate experimental music. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of experimental music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. Alan Tyson is a composer, saxophonist, author, and educator. His philosophy of creating and sharing new music with joyously unrestrained enthusiasm is evident in his multiple artistic endeavors. In addition to compositions that encompass a wide array of genre and instrumentation, Tyson is a member of the voice and saxophone duo entitled Megan Enin and Alan Tyson Present. In addition, Tyson is an author and a music theorist who specializes in analysis and pedagogy of post-1900 classical music. On today's podcast, we listen to Tyson's piece for violin, clarinet, and piano, commissioned by and dedicated to the Argo Trio. I tend not to write music that isn't for someone or doesn't have a performance or an idea of a performance already lined up. I find it very difficult to create in a vacuum. Uh, I think my 
nightmare scenario would be if someone gave me a grant and said, here's $100,000 and you have a year, write whatever you want. That would be the worst for me. Right. Um, right. I would I would immediately take that pile of cash and spend half of it on buying collaborators if I didn't already have them. Bu- buying collaborators, okay. Right, right. Uh, but thankfully, um, I, I have a lot of collaborators on my side, um, other performers. When you've written a piece, how do performers or collaborators factor into this uh, cre- uh, creative process? Uh, usually, whenever I'm commissioned, um, they usually begin with some sort of long conversation between me and the collaborator. Um, I was commissioned to write a uh, work for a brilliant saxophonist, Shauna Pennock, a few years ago. The collaboration started, uh, you know, after she commissioned me, I said, great, I, I want to do a FaceTime or a Skype. Mm-hmm. And we had a conversation for about three hours because we were trying to find something outside of the world of music that that we both connected with. And so we talked about favorite movies, we talked about favorite activities, and, and we got close and we were just not quite feeling it. And swear to goodness, about two and a half hours in, we were kind of just sitting, sitting there staring at each other. And then she goes, <laughs> my favorite word is ricochet. And I went, that's a great word. And so we started talking about this. And I said, well, think about all the different ways that that could manifest in a piece for alto saxophone and piano. And so that was the piece I wrote her. It's a 10 minute work called Ricochet. And each section explores a different kind of articulation. And then the final section of the piece, the final variation brings all of these different kinds of articulation together. And so the structure and the impetus behind the composition came from this offhand remark after I had Stanley Kubrick her ass for two and a half hours. <laughs> and she was desperate. And just Shelly Duvall. Oh, Shelly Duvall. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking about. <laughs> Shelly Duvall just being like at the end of her rope saying, what does he want from me? And I went, great. That's exactly it. And so Shauna, in desperation, we were just saying there, she went, my favorite word's ricochet. And I went, great. That's it. Thanks. <laughs> um, and she, you know, she included that piece in her dissertation work and ended up recording it, performing it several times. And um, so that's that's usually the, the start of the collaboration is just getting together with the person or either that having some kind of adventure with that person, um, yeah. uh, whether it's it, it's already happened or in the present moment and saying, hey, remember that time we did this or, hey, let's let's meet up in non-pandemic times. Let's meet up and. Yeah. And go get coffee or do something. Let's go hiking for three hours together. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. that's yeah. that's usually the start of it. I love digging into something that makes that collaborator's soul ignite. Yeah. And then and something that's meaningful to them. Ex- exactly something. right. Yeah. And then and then when I write the piece for them, they feel that sense of customization it is truly a bespoke work for them and not just oh gee whiz okay so i wrote this for you and your voice or instrument but truly it's something that they go oh my gosh you set the words of my favorite poet or oh my gosh you you wrote this piece based on a painting that i've loved for decades i'm going to perform 
this work many times. And that's, you know, that that's really fascinating too, is that because it's so bespoke, they end up performing the piece or wanting to perform the piece many, many, many times, which works out well for them. And it sure as hell works out well for me. So how do you know in the creative process when something's done? I usually don't have a problem with that. I'm I'm usually not too fussy with wanting to revise or not knowing when the when I should walk away from it. And part of that is a forced issue <laughs> um, because, as I said, I'm usually writing pieces for a specific performance sure. or recording or deadline or that. So I really don't have a choice in the matter. It has to be in the hands of the performer at a certain point. Um, it's but, done when it's performed or it's done when it has to be exactly, done. Exactly. Yeah. But part of my creative process uh, from the get-go is usually road mapping what I want the piece to do and what I want it to say and how long I want it to be. Um, so when I start writing, once I have that original idea, then I ask myself, okay, how do I convert this into musical terms? So I usually start at the beginning. I mean, 98% of the music I've ever written st has started with measure one. Um, yeah. And I know there, I'm not saying that's the best way of going about it. Of right. course, there's so many ways of going about it. That's just the one that, that has always worked for me is I start with measure one and I do tend to write from left to right. So once I get the opening measures, whether it's three bars or whether it's 20, um, then I set that aside and I create an architectural map for what I want to do. Um, and, and usually that includes like how long I want the piece to be. I mean, so I write the first few measures and then I set it aside and I go, great, this is going to be seven minutes long. How does this play out in an effective way for seven minutes? And then I proceed to to section out, okay, well then for about a minute and a half, it'll do this. And then there's gonna be a section that does this for a minute. And then we're gonna to build to this climax at about the five minute mark. And this all sounds very clinical, but then part of my joy and part of my craft is making it not sound that way, right? right. Have the yeah. architecture mapped out and then write the, way, write the piece in a way that doesn't seem pre-planned. Thank you. 
This piece called On de Tombe, commissioned by the Argo Trio, uh, it's for clarinet, violin, and piano, holds a bit of a dear place in my heart because I just had all of these light bulbs finally come on after about 15 years of writing music where I went, aha, yes, all of these different threads that I've been trying to pull together are finally starting to click. Um, and so it was really exciting for me to work with um, a wind, a string, and a percussion instrument coming together. Um, and I knew that I wanted to exploit those timbral differences. So speaking of these different instruments and pairings, you mentioned, and, and we hear the piece, the opening, it's what you are describing as a game of pairs. Yes. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I derive a lot of compositional uh, joy and inspiration out of uh, combining different elements, right? The art of combinatoriality, if you will, um, which I think has served a great deal of uh, inspiration for dramatists over centuries, right? It's the it's the heart of any good comic book series. Oh, what if this character fought this character? This character. What if this character teamed up with this character to fight this character? Um, and so, I don't know, maybe, maybe growing up on comic books fed that kind of dramatic impulse of this, this compulsion uh, to deal with, with Co various combinations. So I knew I wanted to start this piece, piano and violin, and then do violin and then clarinet, and then do clarinet and the piano. And so once I introduced those different pairs, then we would hear all three together and the piece would start to build toward its climax.
So there's programmatically, there's a lot going on in this piece. Uh, we have the idea of the two French words that uh, are very similar uh, in pronunciation, but very different in meaning. And then wrapped into that, you also have the paintings of uh, Gerard Richter as well. So can you talk a little bit about sort of these influences and sort of the program of the piece? Of course. I, yeah, it's 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 a, an abstract program to be sure. Uh, but I was thinking about, you know, with Om et Om, we have uh, waves and shadows, which is those two words working together and synthesizing together are just deeply evocative to me. And when I thought about waves and shadows and, and those two words, um, I thought about those, those seascape paintings by Richter, which are so defined by waves and sh shadows interplaying uh, and, and sure. being blurred together. And so I thought about those two words and what they might mean in combination. And then that sparked uh, my memory of looking at Richter's seascapes. And so all of those things working together, I thought to myself, okay, how could I make waves and shadows into a piece where we're hearing the aural analog of those two ideas coming together? Um, and then I, I let my creative fantasy take it from there. I didn't really want to impose some sort of external program on it beyond what might those two words spark in these combinations of instruments. Do you create for the outcomes? Yes. Absolutely. Hell yes, I do. And what are the outcomes that you're creating for? I The outcome to me is the performers who perform my music feel their souls and, and musical spirits enriched by what I've written for them. That's a big, that's a big outcome. That's a tough. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a tough outcome. Yeah. I, I would rather shoot for that. Uh, then succeed be like, at well, the they, had, they, they, they could have been doing laundry, so yeah. it's a little better than yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like, here's some notes. Go, go do whatever bullshit you want to yeah. do with it, right? No, I, I would rather them, I would rather shoot for uh, writing them a piece that when they perform it, they feel great about what it is that they've created. Even if the piece yeah. is incredibly difficult, they go, wow, 
Al, that's a hard piece, but my God, I love performing it. It's totally worth it. It sparks some kind of joy. It sparks some kind of sorrow. It sparks some kind of emotional, spiritual, soulful feedback within me that then I want to carry over to the audience. Um, And another outcome is that the audience loves it. I I yeah. I do. I think about the audience and I could be writing 12 tone aleatoric music with the crunchiest microtonal stuff ever. I'm still <laughs> thinking about the audience perceiving that and giving them full credit and the benefit of the doubt and I want the audience to go even if they think it's freaking weird or outer space (laughs) stuff. I want them to go, you know what? That wasn't my cup of tea, but I'm still glad I heard it. Well, uh, Alan, this has been uh, fantastic. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so Uh, much, Doug, likewise. Before I let you go, is there a way, or there's gotta be a place where we can find out about more about you, not only your music, but your writing, and you're performing. Oh, you know it, bud. Um, My website is my online home. and uh, I, I frequently update my website um, and, and spoke it out to my, my social media. Um, so it's simply my name.com. So alantyson.com, A-L-A-N-T-H-E-I-S-E-N.com. Um, and then my other website is that of my uh, longstanding performance duo, Megan Enan and Alan Tyson Present. And we abbreviate that to make the, uh, the website much easier to find. It's just M-I-A-T-P.com. Everything I do as composer and author and solo performer and educator and whatnot is all on my website, alantyson.com. Thanks to Al for sharing his time and music with us. If you enjoyed this episode, check out other episodes in the series. And as always, like, subscribe, and leave a comment on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and this has been The Process. <laughs>